Genesis 22, verse 1. It says, after these things, God tested, and just kind of make a note of that word, tested, Abraham. And he said to him, Abraham, and Abraham said, here I am. He said, take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. And he cut the wood for the burnt offering, and he arose and went to the place of which God had told him. On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. Then Abraham said to his young men, Stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac his son. And he took his hand and the fire, in his hand, the fire and the knife. So they went together, both of them. And Isaac said to his father Abraham, My father. And Abraham said, Here I am. And he said, Behold the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering. And so they went, both of them together. Verse 9. When they came to the place where God had told him, Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in the order and bound Isaac his son and laid him on the altar on the top of the wood. And Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham. And he said, here I am. And he said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear. You might make a note of that word fear as well. Now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked and behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord will provide. As it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. Father, we pray over the word this morning that this is another, just like last week, another difficult story maybe for us to read in Scripture and to understand. Lord, we've been studying the life of Abraham and the steps of faith that he has made. God, we want to have faith like Abraham, but we want to have faith that honors you. We want to have faith to believe the dream. We want to have faith to take the journey with you. Lord, even though this story may be hard for us to understand this morning, would you show us something in this scripture, in this passage, that could help us take the next step of faith, to help us take, take us further down the journey and grow closer to you? In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated this morning. We're wrapping up our series this morning on the life of Abraham with probably one of the most famous events in Abraham's life and one of the most well-known stories in the Old Testament. And we know because we've been looking at this for the past six weeks or so that uh, the story of Abraham and Isaac begins 30 years before this chapter. That man named Abram that we first saw in Genesis chapter 12 had been called by God out of pagan religion, out of idolatrous worship, and into friendship with the one true God. And he began this journey where God spoke to him and, and asked him to leave his home country and, and go forward to a land that God would show him. 
And so we know the story. We've looked at it for the past several weeks. Abraham packs up all of his belongings. He, he gathers his family and his servants together, and he sets out on this journey to find the land that God had promised him. And through a series of conversations that we've looked at over the past few, few weeks, we've seen that Abraham learns that God doesn't just have a new place for him to live, but that God wants to give Abraham children. Of course, the big problem with that was that Abraham, in Genesis 12, when God first called him, was already 75 years old. And the Bible says of his wife, Sarah, who was a year younger than him, says that she was past the age of childbirth. It was biologically impossible. But in their 70s, they received this promise that they would have a child. They set out on the journey, believing that God would fulfill the promise, believing that God would make them the spiritual parents, the, the, the genetic parents of a nation and many nations, and that not only one child would come, but an entire uh, ancestry and lineage and, and would, would come after them. And the Bible says that they went through this in Genesis 12. They began this journey, and they went through this these steps of faith that we've been looking at. These different episodes in their life that took them closer to the birth of their son Isaac, which we looked at a few weeks ago. Now, it's also complicated by the fact that from the time they were called in Genesis 12 at the age of 75, it took 25 years for God to fulfill his promise. They waited 25 years for God to do what he said he would do. We looked at that a few weeks ago, and I said, you know, us modern Americans, we don't like to wait 25 minutes for anything. We like the Chick-fil-A drive-thru where we're there at 30 seconds or flat. We like microwaves. We like, we like things fast and instant. We like Amazon Prime, two-day shipping. It's hard to imagine waiting 25 years for something. And then... In chapter 21, finally, after 25 years of waiting, this child of promise is finally born, Isaac. His, his mother names him Isaac, and it means laughter in Hebrew, and she names him that because, one, she laughed at God when God told her she'd have a child, and two, when she finally did have him, she said, joy has been restored to my life. Laughter has been restored to my life. This was a huge moment in their lives. They had lived 100 years years without seeing God fulfill this desire that every woman has and that every man has and every married couple has. And they finally receive this promise and joy and laughter is restored to their household, to their marriage and to their family. Chapter 21 ends with laughter. Chapter 22, though, begins with heartbreak. Immediately after, we see that Isaac, this child of promise, has been born. God speaks to Abraham on the very next page, in the very next chapter. There had been some time that elapsed, but the next time we see God speak is when God says, I want you to sacrifice your son. I want you to offer your son to me. Can you imagine Abraham having that encounter, that experience? You know, wait, wait a minute, God. Wait, you understand, right? that we're only in chapter 22, don't you? You understand, God, that it was just the last chapter that we got this kid. It was just the last chapter that this, this child was born. You know you promised him to me way back in chapter 12, don't you, God? You know that I've been waiting a long time. There's a lot of chapters I've been waiting for this kid. And then now, now you're going to take him from me? It's been 25 years 
Don't you remember how long I wait? I can't believe, God, that you would demand this of me. I know I haven't been perfect, but I've tried to be faithful. And now you're going to rip from me the one thing that you promised me. You're going to require me to kill the dream that I've been believing for 25 years. And you know if I kill him, Sarah's going to kill me, right? You, you, you know, that's what she's going to have to, he's going to have to explain this to his wife. She didn't hear him say it. Abraham heard God say, why? You know what's going to happen. You know you promised to make me a father of many nations, don't you, God? You know that he hasn't even gotten married yet. He hasn't had a chance to have his own children. He's just a boy, and you're going to require me to take his life. What do you mean that you want back the promise that you promised me? What do you mean you want me to sacrifice my dream? We don't know how it all happened. The Bible's real short on details in this scripture. But we know that Abraham, for some reason, agreed to obey God and offer him his son. The scripture says that Abraham rose early the next day and he took Isaac and two servants and they made a 50-mile hike, a three-day journey from the place they were to a mountain called Moriah. And their trip, uh, that three-day journey, traveling with your child of promise, wondering, what is God thinking? Wondering, how did I end up in this predicament? Wondering, what is this going to do to my marriage? Wondering, uh, uh, what's this going to do to my life? Wonder, am I really going to make it through this? The mental and emotional anguish that Abraham must have been experienced. What's going on in his mind? Walking, sweating, praying, grieving, crying, mental anguish, trying to make sense of the insensible. Abraham thinking, I knew this journey with God was too good to be true. I knew this was a sham. I knew that this God would end up like every other God that people around me worship, making demands, blessing some people while cursing other people. I knew he was just one of those, another one of those fickle idols that my father used to serve. This is how it always goes. One God makes one promise or another, but he makes even bigger demands. All the gods other people serve, they require child sacrifices. This was normal in Abraham's culture. This was something that he had seen time and time again. This God must be just like all those other gods. This is something Abraham's seen before in the ancient Near East. Every god required child sacrifice. Every religious system required parents to give up their children to appease the gods. All religions required it. To us, this seems barbaric. This seems, uh, uh, this seems out of the question. This seems totally insane. But to Abraham and his culture and his context, this was just another Sunday service. This was just another day at church. This was something that he had seen before. Knowing that this is how it's done in our culture. Knowing that this is how it's done in this part of the world. Knowing there's no other way. But hating that this is the way it has to be. Hating that this 25-year journey ends like this. Hating what Isaac might think of you. What, hating that you can't explain it to him. Hating that the dream once again seems to be just out of reach. And finally, they get to the foot of the mountain. He looks at his servants and he says, y'all stay here. Just me and the boy are going up the mountain. This last part of the journey is just for us. So Abraham and Isaac, they leave the two servants at the foot of the mountain and they begin to climb, climbing to the spot where Abraham will give up the most important thing in his life. And on the way up, Isaac innocently asks his father, he says, hey, dad, you said we were coming to make a sacrifice. We've got everything but the sacrifice. 
And Abraham, he just has to choke back some tears and swallow the lump in his throat. And he just says, God will provide. They get to the top of the mountain to the place God had appointed for the sacrifice to be made. The scripture says that Abraham built the altar and he laid the wood down in order. And it says that he bound Isaac, his son, and laid him on top of the altar. And we don't know if Isaac resisted. We don't know if there was a discussion, if there was a question or an argument. The scripture doesn't describe exactly how Abraham accomplished all of this. But we can probably infer that this was a traumatic experience. Where after they finish building the altar, then Abraham turns to his son and grabs him by the arm and begins to bind him and tie him up. This was a traumatic scene. This was ugly. This was confusing. There was anger, begging, bargaining, force, questions, arguments, shouting, tears. Now not only is Abraham struggling with his faith, so is Isaac as he's laying on the altar So this is what God's really like. This is what it's really all about. He's just like all those other gods I heard my dad talk about. We thought we had left that all behind, but apparently he's just like him. I knew this dream my dad was chasing was too good to be true. However, it happened. Abraham had Isaac bound on top of the altar. And in verse 10, we see that Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. His son lying helpless, bound up, unable to move, unable to get out. Abraham ready to do what you and I think is unthinkable, but to what Abraham had seen many fathers do to their children. Looking that child of promise in the eyes, trying to be obedient and faithful, but grieving every minute of it. And then just as Abraham is about to complete the job, The Bible says the angel of the Lord cried out, Abraham, aren't you glad he knows your name? Aren't you glad he speaks just in time? Abraham, don't lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son from me. And it says that Abraham looked up when he heard the angel's voice. And there was a ram caught in the thicket by its horns. So Abraham went and took the ram and offered it as a burnt offering instead of his son. For now I know that you fear the Lord, seeing that you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. What if the whole journey, the child being promised, every step that Abraham had taken for 25 years? What if the three-day journey to the mountain, the 50-mile hike, what if the climb up the mountain, what if them carrying the wood and the fire and the knife, the sacrifice, what if all of it, what what if none of it was really about Isaac? What if none of it was really about killing the dream? What if the entire journey from Genesis 12 to Genesis 22 wasn't about God desiring the life of a boy, but was really about God desiring the heart of a father. Now I know that you fear the Lord because you have not withheld anything from me. 
What if the whole story wasn't about Isaac's life? What if God never really wanted Isaac? What if it was really about him just wanting Abraham? To know, is Abraham following me just because I'm a vending machine offering up blessings every now and then? Is Abraham following me just because of the promise of wealth and prosperity? Is Abraham following me just because of what I can give him? Or is Abraham following me because really he's my friend and we really have relationship? What if the way God knew to get Abraham's heart was asking Abraham to trust God with everything he has? In this story, when you look at it, there are just three key phrases that I want to kind of hone in on and zoom in on in the story. And I believe, you know, a key unlocks things. And when we take these key phrases, we can unlock some truth that we can find in the story that we can apply to our own lives. No one here should go sacrifice their child, okay? Kids, you're safe. That's not the truth of this story. In fact, the truth of the story is the exact opposite. When we take these key phrases, we unlock the truth of the story, and we end up realizing that this story is all about God showing Abraham, I am unlike any other God you've ever heard of or ever experienced. I'm unlike any other, other deity, any other religious system, any other, any other philosophy that you've ever encountered. I am different. I don't desire your stuff. I desire you. First key phrase. Verse 1, the first few verses, first few words, God tested Abraham. God tested. I asked you to make a note of that word and just kind of remember it. Because, you know, there is a long list of biblical words that can get tricky. There are a long list of words that we can read in the Bible, and they're, they're just kind of tricky to understand. Words like predestination. Words like judgment. Or even words that we like to use, like Love and grace. They can be tricky because our modern way that we use those words, we can misunderstand and define them incorrectly because we use our cultural way of using those words and think that the Bible's using them in the same way. You hear me? The word test is a tricky biblical word. We think of test to mean a tool that is used to evaluate our knowledge. When the teacher wants to know how much you have learned in the class, he gives you a test. But often, because we are graded on those tests, and because our ability to advance and move forward is determined by the grade on those tests, we see tests as a negative thing, a thing to fear, a thing to be nervous about, or a thing to be afraid of. And we can even begin to question the character of the teacher and accuse the teacher of testing for knowledge he never taught. We can accuse the teacher of not properly preparing the student. And in our postmodern snowflake, everybody gets a trophy and everybody wins culture. When the test gets difficult, instead of working to improve ourselves to pass the test, we just say the teacher's wrong. We accuse the teacher of trick questions. We say the test was unfair. The teacher was prejudiced. The results are invalid. And so then, when we go to the Bible with that mental understanding of what a test is, when we read the word test in the Bible, we take that bias that the teacher's always out to get us. We take that bias that the test is rigged, that the results don't matter, they're invalid. And we take all that mental baggage with us when we see testing in the Scripture. 
But when the Bible uses the word test, and when you come across it when you're reading the Bible, I don't want you to think about a pen and paper. I want you to think about climbing trees. What I mean by that is, you remember when you were a kid, and you were climbing trees, and you were out with your friends, and, and you were out climbing, and you got especially toward the top, and, and the, the branches were a little thinner, and they weren't as strong? And before you swung out and put all of your weight on that branch, what'd you do? You, you tested it. Before you stepped out onto that branch and to hold all of your weight, what'd you do? You kind of, you know, you tested it. You tested to see if it was strong enough to bear the weight that it needed to bear. When you hear testing, I want you to think of trees. You didn't test that branch because the branch did anything wrong. You didn't test that branch because you had it out for the branch. You didn't test that branch to see if it would fail. In fact, you didn't want it to fail. You wanted the branch to fulfill the job, right? You wanted to test that branch because you wanted to see if that branch was strong enough for you to use that branch. You needed to test to see if it was strong enough to bear the weight of the job. So when the Bible says that God tested Abraham, I want you to think of trees. It means that God was, was going out to test, to prove that Abraham, his character was strong enough, that Abraham's relationship with God was strong enough to carry the weight of the calling on his life. This isn't about setting Abraham up to fail or to lose. It's about proving that the covenant that God made with him years before is true and is real. I feel like maybe, maybe somebody needs to hear this. If you feel like you're in a season of testing, if you feel like the clock is ticking, you're sweating, you're sweating it out waiting to, for the teacher to say pencils down, if you're dealing with anxiety about not knowing the answer in life or not knowing where to turn or not knowing how to solve the problem, if you're living in fear of failing the test, I want you to hear me. God is not that kind of teacher. He is not gritting his teeth waiting for you to fail. He's not setting you up just to let you down. He's not waiting with bated breath for you to trip up so that he can stamp a big old fat F on your paper. That is not who God is. God has brought you into this season of testing to prove to you that you're strong enough with him to carry the weight of the calling and purpose he placed on your life. He knows that your life is growing and maturing in Christ and in your relationship with God. And that because of the steps of faith you've taken so far, you have grown strong enough to hold the weight of the calling of your career, of your family, of your marriage, of your business. And the pressure that you're feeling is not intended to set you up to fail. It is intended to prove to you that even in your weakness, He is strong. That even when you're in a time of need, He will come. That you don't have to snap under the pressure. That instead, He is infusing you with the joy of the Lord and the power of the Holy Spirit. That you might stand strong in the face of pressure. The test that Abraham faced was not about waiting to see if Abraham snapped under the pressure. The test was proving to Abraham what this journey is really all about. When you read the entire story, you'll see God never really wanted Isaac's life. 
He only wanted Abraham's heart. So far, Abraham still had a little bit of that idolatrous thinking in him from his old life. He was still treating God like a vending machine that if I pay the right amount of money and I hit the amount of buttons just right, then the treat would fall right where I wanted it to fall. And that's how he was treating his relationship with God. If I do everything just right and hit the right buttons, maybe, just maybe, that thing will fall, that blessing will fall exactly where I need it. But then there's always the chance that it's just a faulty vending machine and the thing gets stuck and you have to shake it a little bit. And there's all this kind of stuff that I'm treating God like I've got to do everything just right in order for God to fulfill his promises in my life. This testing, this proving, this stepping out and testing the strength of the branch, it's all about God showing Abraham that the journey is not about what you can get from God. The journey is about just getting to know God. Is about being in relationship with your creator. Abraham, I am not some distant God waiting for you to fail so I can punish you. I'm not some distant God that's requiring offerings but never giving relationship. Abraham, I am the God of your covenant. I am not after your son's life. It's that I'm after your life. I'm after your heart. I'm after fellowship with you and friendship with you. And yes, I want to bless you, but I want the greatest blessing to be just that we're friends, just that we're in relationship, just that how I created Adam in perfect relationship, that that can be restored with humanity through you and through your offspring. All that leads me to the second key phrase that in this passage that I want to point out. The first one was God tested Abraham. The second is when God says, now I know you fear the Lord for you have not withheld. Fear is another one of those tricky Bible words. Because we take fear to mean something like a horror film where we're waiting for something to pop out, something physical or mental or emotional uh, that could harm us so that we run away. And that's how we read fear when we read the Bible. But the biblical word fear is not about being harmed. In fact, it's the opposite. This fear is actually a life-giving word. In fact, Mary, the mother of Jesus, after she conceived Jesus by the Holy Spirit, In her praise to the Lord, she uses the word fear and she attaches it to the idea of God's mercy and God's forgiveness. In Luke chapter 1, she says, His mercy extends to those who fear Him. Fear isn't about being afraid. Fear is about mercy. Fear is about life. Fear is about intimacy with God. Fear can't mean running away from God in terror. Fear means running to God in humility and awe and in reverence and respect. And I saw this on the internet a few times over the past month, and I really like it. It describes biblical fear in a really cool way. I want you to look at this. Maybe some of you have seen it. All those other pagan religions and idolatrous worship, it says, I messed up. My dad's going to kill me. But the gospel is, I messed up, I need to call my dad. That's the difference here in what fear is like in the scripture. God is saying, I want you to see the strength of our relationship. I want you to see the strength of our covenant. I've tested the branch, and it's proven that it can hold the weight. And you fear me in the best sense of the word, enough to respect me, to obey me, to have reverence for me, and to trust me. So much so that you wouldn't withhold anything from me. That you trust me with your most precious possessions. See, Isaac really represented all of Abraham's future. 
It represented all of Abraham's promise. He was Abraham's insurance policy. He was Abraham's uh, firstborn son. And as that couple got older and older, they would rely on their son to provide for them and their families. All of Abraham's life was wrapped up in this little boy. But God asked Abraham to trust him with the thing that mattered most to him, to not withhold the thing that he held most dear. And there comes a place in every Christian's life where you and I, we will reach a decision point where we will have to decide, am I going to withhold anything from God or is he truly Lord and master over everything in my life? There comes a place where we have to determine that with every step, we will never, ever, ever withhold anything from God, that he is our possessor, that he is the master, that he is the Lord over our entire lives, that we offer up everything we have to him. Even the dreams and promises we hold dear, and we trust Him with them. And we trust that He's a good God who keeps His promises. Because the test isn't about seeing you fail. The test is ensuring that you won't withhold anything in your relationship with God. You know, no marriage works by withholding trust. No marriage works by withholding the most intimate parts of your life. A marriage begins to work when you begin to allow your, your, your spouse to possess and be a part of every intricate detail of your life. And that's the only way that you can work through conflict. That's the only way you can grow stronger. That's the only way you can face difficulty and adversity. When you know that other person and you can trust them and you're not withholding, you're not hiding part of your life from them, you're not keeping secrets from them, you're not keeping a different bank account that they don't know about, you're giving everything over to them and they're giving everything over to you. I see that you won't withhold anything from me. And that's exactly how it works with God. You can get saved, you can say a sinner's prayer with, and withhold a lot, but you can't grow as a Christian, and you can't become who God called you to be, and you can't be everything that God has, and you can't have everything God has for you by withholding things from Him. Your journey will stop at the point that you're willing to withhold something from Him. Let me ask you, what are you withholding from God? Some of you, you're withholding your worship. I'm going to say this as your pastor, and I'll get in trouble, and you can be mad at me if you want. And I'm not saying everybody's got to jump up and down and run and shout and all that kind of stuff. That's not what I'm saying. But I'm saying I see you come in here, and there is a wall every Sunday. You come, and you're faithful. You love God, and you want to do right. But you come, and there is a wall in worship in your life. And you have not been willing to step out and say, you know what? I'm not going to withhold praise and worship from the Lord. And I'm just telling you as your pastor because I love you. If that's you, you will stop growing at that point. And until that wall comes down and you stop withholding your worship, and you stop withholding your praise, and you stop withholding, because worship is all about you and your life. And you will stifle your growth as a Christian by withholding your worship. Some of you, maybe you're withholding service. You're not serving God the way you should be. I'm not talking about in the church, I could, whatever about that. But maybe it's in your, in your job or in your workplace, or maybe he's placed a calling on your life that you've resisted. And I'm telling you, I'm not saying you won't go to heaven, but I am saying you won't continue to grow on this journey of faith until you stop withholding the thing that he's called you to do. Some of you, you're withholding obedience. You're withholding communication and prayer. You're not spending time with the Lord in intimacy. 
and in prayer. I'm not saying you're not going to go to heaven. I'm not condemning anybody to hell. But I am saying the journey stops when you start withholding. Wherever you stop with God is just where you stop. I don't say that judgmentally. I say that as a, as a, a pastor who loves you and I want to see you grow. Don't withhold anything from the Lord. And there does come a point where certain things, if you withhold from God, you are putting, making yourself a candidate for God's discipline and God's judgment. Withholding sin, withholding him working in your life on those areas that need to be corrected and changed. Trying to live a Christian life but saying, I'm going to keep my little pet sin. I'm going to keep that thing that, that I enjoy or that thing that, well, it's really not a big deal. But God, the Holy Spirit, has been nudging and poking at that thing. And you have a choice to either withhold it, and eventually he'll stop poking and he'll just let you have your sin. Or you can say, you know what, God, it's yours. Yes, I struggle. Like we talked about last week, I struggle with it. I'm not asking for perfection. I'm not saying that you're always going to get it right. But you say, you know what, God, it's yours. The, the ugliness of it, the mistakes of it all, the failure, it's all yours, God. I'm not going to withhold it from you anymore. We've been talking about the journey of faith. We've been talking about taking steps of faith. And the truth is, is that the steps you take are up to you. God just lays the path out. And wherever you stop is just where you stop. But God has something at the end of the path for you. He has a destiny and he has a purpose for you. And you can miss out on things that God has for you by withholding from him. And what you will find out is like Abraham you can offer something to him, and oftentimes, not every time, but oftentimes, he'll give it right back to you. He just wanted to see if it was his or yours. He wanted to prove and test the branch and see where you were. God doesn't test us to steal from us. He brings us to the test because he desires us. He desires all of us, all of our love, devotion, affection, all of our dreams, our plans, our hopes. And that brings me to the third key phrase in the scripture this morning. Look at this verse. God will provide for himself the lamb. We're often shocked at this story reading it. The idea that the God of the New Testament, the God of grace and love and mercy, the God of the cross and the crucifixion, the God, that God would ask for a child sacrifice. But remember, like I said, child sacrifice at this time, with every pagan religion Abraham would ever have been familiar with, this was a regular thing. This was normal in Abraham's culture. But this story is about God proving himself that he isn't like those other gods that demand child sacrifice. He isn't like those gods that demand blood. God didn't demand the innocent blood of Abraham's son God had a plan to sacrifice a lamb, a perfect lamb. This is a beautiful prophetic picture of God saying, Abraham, your son doesn't have to die for you today. The plan all along is for God the son, my son, the lamb of God, to sacrifice himself. God is saying, you don't have to sacrifice your son, I'll sacrifice mine. Isaiah 53, 7 says of Christ, it says, he was led like a lamb to the slaughter. Revelation, I believe it's chapter 5, John's having a vision of heaven. 
And the host of heaven say, Behold the Lamb of God, who is slain before the foundations of the earth. Jesus is the Lamb of God. Abraham says, on, uh, God will provide for himself a lamb of sacrifice. He didn't know he was prophesying about a coming Messiah who would die for you and for me. For the past two months, we've been looking at the story of Abraham, his steps of faith, his journey of faith. We've been learning how to live by faith and take steps of faith. And while it appears like the journey has been all about one man pursuing God, in reality, the truth of the story is, is that God was pursuing a man. And while it's easy for you and me to think that we have to cross every T and dot every I to gain access and favor with God, while it's easy to just focus on pursuing God, your story and my story is really all about God pursuing us. This whole time, whether you knew it or not, Wherever you're at on the journey and on the pathway of your life, this entire time, the entirety of your life, God has been in hot pursuit of your heart. He's the shepherd who lives in, leaves the 99 to restore one. He's that widow who turns the house upside down to find the one coin. He's the father that fights every demon in hell to rescue his child. He's the prophet who loves the adulterous wife. He relentlessly pursues you. He told me if I climbed the highest mountain, he'd be there. But if I was in the lowest valley, he'd be there also. Even if I made my bed in hell itself, he would go and find me and rescue me. There's nothing that the Bible says that no angel, nor demon, no principality or power, no force, no height, nor depth that could ever separate me from his love. His faithfulness is unending. His mercy is new over us every morning. His love never fails. It never gives up. It never runs out. His love is like that deep sea of forgetfulness that he cast your sin into. His love is as big as the east is from the west where he separated your sin. His love pursues you to the very ends of the earth, to the end of your rope, to the rock bottom of your life. He has been pursuing you. You thought the journey was about pursuing him, but he took a journey up a mountain called Calvary 2,000 years ago, and he allowed himself to be placed on a cross so that you and I could have freedom and you and I could have forgiveness. They took him, the pure and spotless lamb of God. They beat him. They abused him. They mocked him. They spat on him. They hung him high. They stretched him wide. They pierced his side. And the blood came streaming down. And in his effort to capture my heart and your heart, he laid down his own life. The ultimate, perfect sacrifice. And the Bible says in Philippians, for the joy set before him. Excuse me, in Hebrews, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross. And you know what that joy was? That joy was relationship with you. Jesus, hanging on a cross, saw joy 2,000 years in the future when he looked at Bart and a relationship with Bart, when he looked at Neil and a relationship with Neil, when he looked at Susan and said, I want a relationship with Susan, he said, there's joy even on this cross right now because I see the relationship I can have in the future. And the Bible says they killed him on that cross, but in three days, 
God, the, the scripture says in, in Ephesians, it's like he worked, he exerted himself, he flexed his muscle, and he pulled up Christ out of that grave. And the resurrected God is now seated high in heavenly places. And in Philippians, he says, now he has pursued us even to the point of death. And he is now highly exalted, having a name that is high above every other name, so that every knee would bow and every tongue would confess that Jesus is Lord, that he is the lamb God has provided for himself, that he has captured our hearts, that he has conquered our lives, that we have surrendered everything to him and we withhold nothing from him. Isaac isn't needed on the altar. Your dream isn't needed on the altar. Your promise isn't needed on the altar. You are needed on the altar. Your heart is needed on the altar. Your life is needed on the altar. And the scripture says that when we die in Christ, we are raised to newness of life. That it looks like we were dead and down for the count. But there is resurrection power in this journey. There is resurrection life on the other side of the altar. There is joy and unspeakable and love excelling. There is so much more if we would just put ourselves on the altar and allow the Lamb of God to do a work in our lives. Let me ask you, and Katie, would you come? Has God captured your heart? Who could withhold anything from this God? This God who gave everything for me, this God who didn't withhold his own life and his own son for my life, how can I withhold anything from him? When I was his enemy, when I was still dead in my sin, when I was an angry teenager shaking my fist at him because of things that had happened in my life and blaming him. He didn't withhold anything from me. He didn't withhold his life. He didn't withhold his blood. He didn't withhold his love. He gave it all. How can I withhold anything from this God? not only has the power to change my life, he has the will and the desire to change my life. To deliver me from my sin, to set me free from spiritual bondage, to give me life and life abundantly. No matter what season we find ourselves in where it seems like God is ripping something from our hands or he's requiring something of us, the truth is our story isn't about what God wants from us. Our story isn't about God wanting to kill us or hurt us or steal from us or take from us. Our story is just about him wanting us. what he can give you or or how you can treat him like a, a vending machine or an ATM but simply because he didn't withhold anything for you that we don't withhold anything for him that's the God 
child sacrifice. He sacrifices his own son for you and for me. He's different than any other God, any other religious system, any other philosophy, any other argument. He's different. I'm going to ask you to stand with me.